well, this is the face of a man who's clearly been badly beaten, and he seems like a nice enough guy. He certainly doesn't seem like the kind of guy who goes looking for a fight. So what happened to this poor gentleman to be beaten so badly about the face? Was he a bouncer at a nightclub? Certainly doesn't look like one. No, that wasn't it. Did he stumble into a bad neighborhood? Was he randomly assaulted on the streets? What on earth could have caused somebody to take that kind of beating? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. He was in a fairly high-risk occupation, you see. He was refereeing a kid's soccer game. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Whittle here with Steve Green and Scott Ott. And uh, this particular right angle is about a, a trend that started many years ago, certainly two or three decades ago. and continues to get worse. Uh, this gentleman was uh, asked to sit in by a friend to referee a soccer game. He had refereed other soccer games, and apparently... He did something with one of the players in terms of pulling them out of the game or not putting them in the game or something. The father of the child uh, said, hey, can we talk for a second? The guy in, uh, who was badly beaten went on to say, I said, sure. We started walking. The next thing you know, I'm on the ground. Now, as it turns out, the parent who beat this man pretty severely because he didn't like the way he was coaching his kid had been involved with the shooting earlier and was by all accounts a bad egg. So I was tempted to say, okay, this is a one-off. However, when I looked into the comments on this, what I found again and again and again, nonstop, gentlemen, was that this was, in fact, so common that people were saying, I used to coach Little League Baseball and I got out of it. I used to coach uh, Pee Wee Soccer and I got out of it. I saw a number of comments from people saying, look, I, I, work in a, in a, I used to work in a ward where we handled paranoid schizophrenics and I also coached uh, kids' uh, sports games, and I finally got back to the hospital where I could relax a little bit. Um, yeah. Guys, what is it about this that seems to be endemic and, and continues to grow, where you will have something as innocuous as a, as a Little League baseball game and have parents become so enraged by the situation that they will physically beat coaches to death? I, I, we could play an entire montage just for the next for the duration of this show, of fistfights breaking out between parents at children's sporting events. Steve, all I can tell you is I can remember playing Little League Baseball, and I can remember some parents being more enthusiastic than others in terms there, of cheering. There was always that in one yeller. In terms of yeller. cheering their yeah. kids on. Yes, but I, I don't remember any, ever, any abuse being directed towards coaches or, 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 or things of that nature. And then shortly after that, as I started to get older, I started to hear more and more stories of parents getting involved with this. And now it just seems to be like, as I said, this is a, a high-risk occupation, volunteering your time to referee games for children and for fear of being beaten nearly to death by the parents. Yeah, you know, um, I'm a story. I haven't thought of this in a long, long time. I grew up a St. Louis Blues fan because, of all people, my great-grandmother Bought season tickets starting in 1967, the year the Blues franchise began. And uh, at, at some point, I must have been 9 or 10, I guess, uh, I, I thought it would be cool to uh, ape the loud guy a couple of seats over, a couple of rows over, wherever it was, and, and, and really start yelling at the at the ref for, for bad calls. And my, my great-grandmother, a very dignified lady who loved some hockey, touched my leg and leaned over and said, the referees do the best they can. Yeah. And left it at that. But for her, that was a very effective scolding. So I was just, okay, I don't do that anymore. Uh, we, we, we need more of that. Uh, dignity, I guess, is the, the thing we're lacking. Um, well, a little time I spend on Twitter, I mostly spend with the uh, curated lists that I, I make myself so that uh, 
I don't want the algorithm. I, I want to see what I want to see. And one of those those lists of mine is called "Like Humans Do," named after the the David Burns song. And it's a it's it's a collection of Twitter accounts that post nothing but uh, silly or awful videos of, of human beings being human beings. And one just came up yesterday or Sunday, and it was a, a woman and a couple of her friends, maybe three friends. One one one's holding the the phone and and taking the video. And they've gone into this woman has gone into Walmart with a baseball bat, and she thinks it's going to be fun to uh, uh, bash a flat screen television to death, just yeah. right right there in in Walmart. I, I don't know if the video's new, but it was it was new to me in any case. And she was shocked, shocked when the police officer shows up to arrest mm-hmm. her, and even though her friend is right there, you know, filming the whole thing with his or her whoever video camera with the, with her phone is is denying the whole thing you can't arrest me i didn't break any tv and so it occurs to me we've we've got two americas here um obama was wrong about that as as he was with everything else but it's not necessarily red versus blue or anything like that um it's low impulse control versus high impulse control and as parents we want the best for our kids but how are we going to do that is is the real question how are we going to help them get the best and if you're a parent at a sporting event with uh with and you have low impulse control and and you don't like the way your kids getting refed maybe you're going to uh, leave the stands and meet the crap out of the ref or maybe you're going to be like my great grandmother was and show some impulse control show some dignity and have that innate authority to very quietly suggest the right thing and have that kid sit up and listen and take a lifelong lesson from that. You mean the kid that would eventually become a parent? Because it's not the kids that are doing this. I know. I know. But it was my great-grandmother who who set that example for me in a very strong way when I was eight or nine years old. I think you're on to something here because, look, human beings – this fundamental theory of conservatism, and it also happens to be correct, which is essentially human nature does not change, that, that, that there are – you can put into place a society, rules, and, and, and socialization that does its very best to uh, suppress negative behaviors and, and reward positive ones. So my point here, uh, and for you, Scott, is that this, is, this has changed since we were young. This is bad and getting worse. I don't think the percentage of population with good or bad impulse control has changed from a genetic point of view. I was listening to Jordan Peterson talking about in his real in his main area of expertise, which is uh, psychiatry and, and psychology. And he was saying that if you look at uh, children, two to four percent of males, virtually no females, are physically aggressive and will often go up and take toys from other people. He said, that's not a bad number, actually, if you think about it. He says about half of those kids will be socialized out of it, and once they're taught that this is not appropriate behavior, then they're fine for the rest of their lives. But if it doesn't happen by the time they're four or five, he said, these these people are going to be in for a rough ride. They're going to be responding violently and inappropriately for the rest of their lives. So what do you think is causing this eruption that is that is continuing to grow something has changed 
it was inconceivable when, when I was a kid, and, and I'm sure for both of you as well, we all played sports when we were little kids, it's inconceivable that our, that our parents would make enough of a fuss to embarrass us, let alone become physically violent with this. When I was looking at a, a montage of some of these fights, Scott, I was looking at the, almost all of them dads doing the, the fist fighting, and the thing that, that struck me, and I, I can't even put my finger on why, but it struck me that this somehow looked to me like the male equivalent of the moms of, of little girls who are entered into beauty, beauty pageants, stage moms, that these are dads who, who, who either wanted to compete or, or, or thought they'd be good or whatever, and are somehow vicariously living their athletic fantasies out through their children. That struck me somehow, but, it, but I don't know if there's any truth to that. No, I think there is. And in fact, that's exactly what I was going to say. My, all, all the training I have with regard to this comes from my grandfather who raised me as a dad and uh, brought me up from about the age of, well, he started earlier than this, but we lived with him from when I was about five or six years old onward. And he coached several of our teams. He was always coaching football and baseball. He started football leagues. He started baseball leagues. And he used to uh, he had no tolerance for parents who could not control themselves in the bleachers. Uh, so there are a couple couple of factors here. Number one, I'm not convinced that there's more of it today than there was in the past. I do know that the distribution systems for the video of it are a lot better now than they were then. We didn't really have a clearinghouse for that just because it didn't happen on the field at your baseball stadium. Okay, fair um, enough. Maybe. So it's possible that it's always been a problem. I don't know. Nevertheless, okay. I know the attitude has always been a problem, whether the actual physical outburst has or not. And I can remember a game. I don't know where we were, but I remember we um, we were watching Pop coach a game, and me and my brother were sitting in the stands, and it was at some sort of a high school field, but it wasn't a high school team. He was like, a, I don't know, 95-pound Little League game. And um, at one point, there was this dad in the stands who was just bellowing instructions to his kid, yelling criticisms at his kid, yelling at the referees, yelling at the coaches. And my grandfather, who was coaching the team, turned around and looked up into the stands, and I forget his exact words, but he basically said, you're going to sit down and be quiet or you will be out of here. This is a kid's football game. <laughs> and and the guy sat down and shut up and was not heard from for the rest of the game. But maybe that's all it takes. Yeah, it it there's an attitude adjustment that needs to happen on the part of coaches basically and to understand what you're in it for. For a brief time I coached little league basketball and I did it cuz they needed help. I don't know anything about basketball really, but I figured mm -hmm. if I could coach like 7, 8, 9 year olds, I you know, how much do I have to know to be able to teach them how to dribble and stuff like that? Um, so anyway, the way they handled that little league was they had a draft, a draft, mind you. And you went to this thing. What do they call that in football where, where they have all the players come out and the coaches are all hanging out, the recruiters are out? Yeah. But it wasn't just a tryout. It was like it was the day when all the coaches got to look at all the players at the same time. And, like a scouting thing yes, or something. Yes, and decide who they would want to pick. And there was this one coach who had been actually developing a team over a course of several years. And so he had figured out how the whole draft process worked and how he could get the players that he wanted so essentially, he was able to reassemble last year's team and add a couple of other choice picks to it, cut the guys he didn't like so much. 
And so he had kind of built a little dynasty inside, inside of this Little League draft system. And, cool. uh, and I remember thinking at the time, like when I was there trying to pick my kids, I was looking for kids who looked like they were having fun and mm-hmm. who were treating other people well and, you know, who were not ball hogs and show offs. I was looking for people, kids who looked like they enjoyed the game. I mean, these are little kids. So... Anyway, we get I get my team of of uh, fun kids. He gets his team of future professional basketball players, and we wind up playing um, one. We came together in the playoffs. Believe it or not, how we got to the playoffs must be because everybody everybody got to the playoffs. But um, they're they're pounding us like they're all all their kids are taller than ours. You know, they're early bloomers and everything, and they're just they're just destroying us as far as the score goes. But my kids are doing the best they can and having a good time. He's standing on the sideline. The other coach is standing on the sideline yelling instructions at his team the whole time. I'm standing on the sidelines. Basically, when I yelled, it was to say, hey, good job. Way to go. That's it. You know, excellent. Like, because they don't hear your instructions. They're out there on the <laughs> on the court. There's applause and people shouting. So anyway, at one point, we break for a timeout. And I hear the coach Uh, It was toward the end of the game, and I hear the coach on the other side tell his guys, listen, guys, um, I want you to back off, dial it down, and um, don't don't play so hard. You know, let let the other kids get the ball every once in a while, because this team was so much better than our team. And I walked over to him, and I said, coach— you tell your boys to play the best ball they can because that's what I'm telling my boys. And my boys can take a loss, but they can't take being treated as second class. They can't tr- take being coddled. You you tell your boys to do the best they can. I'll do the same, and we will. And we'll walk out of here with the loss, with our heads held high. And uh, that that attitude to realize that this is about the kids. That's that's why my grandfather was a great football coach. I'd have no idea what his record was over the years, nor did he ever talk about it. All The only record that he had was, I played every kid every game. And you knew that if you were on Jim McMaster's team, if your son was on Jim McMaster's team, he was going to get time on the field, substantial time on the field, equal to the other players. He was going to get a chance to play. And, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to teach these kids how to learn how to work together, how to, how to enjoy the game of football or soccer or baseball or whatever it is you're doing. So I don't know if it's worse today than it was before, but I do wish more parents understood the purpose of little league sports and that is it's for children to learn something that they can enjoy that throughout their lives they'll look back on joyfully well i'm really glad you took this in that direction because i think this is a, is a much better way to, to to look at this thing um when i was playing little league uh, baseball i got uh, just routinely selected uh, uh we had six teams and we had six different colored t-shirts. That was the name of the team, T-shirts and hats. So I got recruited on Scarlet Red. Now, Scarlet was coached by these two younger guys named the Palmetter Brothers, and these guys were absolute sadists. Uh, one of them would go on to become one of the deadliest cops in Miami-Dade. Uh, every every year, he'd be one of the deadliest policemen in the in the entire county. And and what they would do on, on the day I, I first played with uh, – 
with practice with, with Scarlett was they would do uh, sliding practice. And the way that these two guys did sliding practice is they'd have you line up on third base, you'd slide into home, and they would swing an aluminum baseball bat, and you had to come in under that bat or else you catch it in the face. And I did one day with those guys, and I said, I'm not staying here anymore. I don't like this. So I went to a different team called Maroon, which was coached by a guy named um, – Mr. Kirkwood, and uh, Mr. Kirkwood would take us out to get a Slurpees at the end of every game at the 7-Eleven, whether we won or lost, and we lost every game our first season. We were 0-10. Next year, we were 10-0. And, um, and and you're right. It, it, it A great deal of that is dependent on the individual's the, those guys who were on Scarlet were determined to win at all costs, and Mr. Kirkwood was determined that we have a good time at all costs. And um, not only did we have a good time, we eventually ended up doing both. So I, I say that just to say this. We're going to be doing a number of interviews uh, with celebrities here at BillWhittle.com, and, and the, the first one we're going to be doing is with John Voight, and I ended up watching a bunch of John Voight movies, and there are two moments in John Voight movies that I think apply to this. There's a scene in um, Midnight Cowboy where Joe Buck has just arrived from Texas in New York City. He's walking through the city and marveling at, any, at everything, and it's a montage, and they're singing, everybody's talking at me. And in this particular moment, there is a, a businessman who is passed out on the street. He's, he's had a heart attack or something. He's down. And Joe Buck has just arrived from Texas, and he's, and he's looking down at this guy, and he wants to help him. But all the rest of the New Yorkers are just walking right past him, like they just not like he's not there. And he wanted to help him, but he doesn't because the social proof hmm. is you don't help people. That's what the peer pressure is saying. Social proof says, well, I'm in New York and no one else in New York is helping this guy, so I want to help him, but he doesn't. He moves on. So social proof is is it. And I think if if your social proof is that parents do not behave that way at a baseball game for kids, then they won't behave that way at a baseball game for kids. If, on the other hand, this kind of fighting and this kind of you know showboating and this kind of boorishness and this kind of aggression and all the rest of this stuff is accepted as part of the experience, then that's what you're going to get more of. But I think the one thing that was most uh, impactful on this particular thing is this. Uh, he made a movie called The Champ with Ricky Schroeder, and Rick Schroeder's performance in The Champ is one of the best performances I've ever seen by anybody, and how it was done by a five- or six-year-old child is hmm. beyond my comprehension. But in this particular movie, uh, John Voight plays a father who loves his son, but he's also an alcoholic with a, with a gambling problem. And one of the things that you see again and again and again is the look of embarrassment and shame on the face of his son as he's carrying his drunken father up the stairs and putting him to bed and taking his socks off and so on, the pain on the face of that kid. And to be honest with you, I think that's actually the hope that we can look for in a situation like this. Yeah. What I mean by that is this. If you're looking at a, at, a, at a baseball game or a football game or a soccer game being played by children, and somebody's father comes out of the stands and starts beating up the referee, despite the pain of it, I would much rather see that child crying from humiliation and shame, that gives me hope. If the child, on the other hand, is rooting the father on and, and acting like he's entitled to a better game, then not only is that kid in real trouble, we're in real trouble too. For Steve Green and Scott Ott, I'm Bill Whittle. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time here on Right Angle.